0: Peter Younger, there's a service downstairs, you're welcome to go to that. I'd like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Was that an um, unordained pastor's conference this uh, weekend, Friday and Saturday? And um, my topic that I was speaking on was uh, the Old Covenant and the New, the Law and the Gospel. So I think it's ironic that my text this morning comes right out of the Ten Commandments, back in the law for, for one service here this morning. Um, and actually, what I want to share with you this morning is, are some of the things that uh, came to me while I was at this conference. For those of you that do not understand our process of ordaining, which is man's recognition of God's call upon a person's life uh, to serve in uh, in what we call vocational ministry. We're so messed up. You know, the Catholic Church from the thousand years ago was still influencing so much of what we do and think, and, and so we have this clergy laity thing and reverends and you know, all that kind of stuff, which is all total nonsense. But anyway we still have people that end up as pastors and missionaries and and workers like that. And we have a process that we go through of kind of recognizing who those people are before we turn them loose on the church, you know. And uh, that process involves, first of all, licensing them, which means when they finish their official training or whatever background they come to us with, that we uh, examine them scripturally, make sure they have sound doctrine, their lives are in order, and uh, you know they understand what we're all about. And if they kind of get through that opening session, then we give them a license and allow them to uh, begin uh, ministering in various capacities in local churches. And for the next two years, we kind of watch their lives. And the church watches their life, and they... Uh, read uh, some more material and books and they write reports and um, they interact back and forth and at the end of two years you know we kind of bring them back together and and they need a couple things they need the church where they've been serving to give them a letter of recommendation saying we've observed your life and we see god's hand upon you and his call in your life and um Then we want to know that they can still testify. God has called me. There's no question in my mind about that. And we examine them in a more thorough way regarding their doctrine and we read the position papers they've written and they take a final mega test, you know, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then we say, okay, uh, we're going to, we're going to lay hands on you and commit you to the work that that God has called you to do, and and so that's the the process that we call ordination. So we had a weekend time where we invited all of the people that are in that two-year process to come in, and and let us share with you some of the things that are important to know. It's Friday evening, many of you were praying for me, and I appreciate that. Uh, the the message that I brought to the group was uh, the Spirit-filled. Life, the deeper life in Jesus Christ, and what that all that means coming to a crisis moment being filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit and and living life in the power and control of the Holy Spirit, and what that 's all about and god God just really made that a very special time, but in and around that we also focused on Christ, our Savior and Christ our healer, and Christ our coming king and in the midst of that our assistant district superintendent gave some devotional thoughts about what it, what it means to be rather than to do and to, to rest in God and, and to be centered in the person of Jesus Christ, not about performance, not about the busyness of working in the course of ministry, but about being in God, resting in Him. And in order to do that, he brought some thoughts along the lines of idolatry. And isn't that interesting? That you would talk to a group of pastors in transition toward ordination about the subject of idolatry. And yet it was extremely important and appropriate for us. Because when you look at the Scripture... And you kind of take it apart and, and say, what is the the problem when people go off the wire, when people go wrong, what is happening in their lives? It eventually derives to some form of idolatry. And when we hear the word idolatry, our tendency is to think about, you know, stone figures and totems and primitive peoples. Uh, doing sacrifices and bowing down in strange temples but in scripture idolatry is really anything in our lives that becomes elevated above God anything in our lives that becomes the focus of our intention of our attention the, the, the goal of our existence that thing for which we live is our God And so idolatry is not that weird thing in primitive peoples in some pagan temple somewhere. Idolatry is actually the problem that every human being faces every day of their lives. Who is on the throne? Whom are we serving and worshiping? And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, beginning in verse 2, the very first commandment, The scripture says, God speaking to Moses and on the tablets of stone, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods ahead of me, before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice what he says, you shall have no other gods ahead of me. And you know, sometimes I think when, when unbelievers hear us talk like that as Christians, they think, wow, you have a really egotistical God. I mean, you know, when they hear us talk about the exclusivity of the gospel, there is no other way to come to God and have eternal life except through Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says, what Jesus says. People hear that and they say, wow, your God's pretty arrogant. You know, that's the only way. What kind of a God is this? Well, (laughs) he's God. I mean, he is God. There isn't any other God. He is. He is God. And there is no other God. So, it's truth. You know, when God says you will worship Me alone and, and Me only, and you will have no other gods, it's because He's the only real God. There isn't an alternative. However, notice the way it's worded, you shall have no other gods Ahead of me, there's no third option. He doesn't say you, can have, you, you should not be idolaters or atheists. Because there is no true atheist. There are people who deny the existence of the supernatural being, but they still worship and they have a God. We were designed as human beings to be worshiping people who have a God. We were made that way. Augustine put it this way um, when he said, There is a God-shaped void in the heart of every person, and that person finds no rest until they find their rest in God. God needs to fill that hole in their lives because every human being was designed to be a worshiping person. And we will have a God. Whether it is the true God or not, we will have a God because we were hardwired in the creative intent to be worshiping people serve a God. That was part of our design. If you look with me over in the New Testament to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul makes some interesting observations about unbelievers. In terms of their false worship. And in Romans chapter 1. If you just turn there. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So they're without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Friends, even rational humanists who claim to be atheistic in their sense of God and who pursue the lofty ideals of rationalism as the ultimate way to a utopian world or culture, those who are, embrace that kind of intellectualism and humanism that says, you know, we are really all there is and, and we can perfect ourselves, is exactly what Paul says here. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the Creator. And the word exchanged is used in in both sections here in Romans 1 because no human being ever becomes godless. They just trade their gods. Every person worships something. Something. I listed a few verses on your, on your study guide, if, uh, if you have those there, Galatians five twenty, you don't have to turn there, but uh, you can look at these later. But let me just uh, point out some things. Idolatry is one of the deeds of the flesh. Now, maybe it's obvious, but let me say it anyway, Galatians, Colossians, and 1 John are books written to Christians. They're not books written to unbelievers. They're written to believers. They're written to the church. And in Galatians chapter 5, among the deeds of the flesh, Paul says if you're not living and walking in the Spirit, you will be living and walking in the flesh. Again, that's one of those things where you don't have a third option. You're either in the Spirit or you're in the flesh. That's the only two places you can be. And if you're in the flesh, idolatry is going to be one of your problems. You may not bow down and worship a God of stone, but you're going to be worshiping, focusing, investing yourself in some other thing that has captured your heart. People in the flesh suffer with idolatry. It's part of the deeds of the flesh. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Paul says it very plainly there. I'm not talking about a god of stone or wood or a pagan temple. I'm talking about passions, desires, hungers that amount to idolatry because they dominate the life. They become the God we serve. 1 John 5.21, the end of this letter very last verse, John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, you know, John did not get to the end of his letter and say, Oh, I had a whole other chapter I was going to write, but I don't have time. So let me just add this little thought at the end. Keep yourselves from idols. I know. John wrote a letter. And he said, "I'm writing to you." He was he was combating false teaching. He says, "I'm writing to you so that you can you can know that you have eternal life." First John five thirteen. That's what he says. That's not the verse you quote right after you lead someone in the sinner's prayer. That that's you know that verse is how a believer examines their life, or at least a professing believer examines their life to say, "How do I know that I have eternal life?" John says, "You can know." Here's the test. Take a look. And he gives us some explanations in his whole letter. He says, if, if you walk in the light as God is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, is cleansing us from all sin. That's one of the ways you can know. If, if you're not... Uh, habitually sinning. If if you hate sin, if you love righteousness, you love God. The one that is born of God does not continue in sin. That's one of the ways you can know the one who's born of God loves the brother loves the brethren and love they love each other. They, their lives are filled with love. They don't say, "Depart, be warmed and filled, and let uh, God meet all your needs." Meanwhile, you're hiding your wallet and and your cupboard, and you know you love the brothers. And, and John says these are the tests you can apply. They're objective. They're There are things that you can look at in your life. Is this true of you? Okay, then this is how you know that you have eternal life. And as he goes through this whole letter, five chapters, explaining all this thing, the last thing he says to the church is guard yourselves from idols. Idolatry is a snare even for believers. Because if we're not worshiping God then we will be worshiping something else. Something will capture our hearts and our emotions. It will capture our imagination. It will be the thing that fuels our fire, so to speak. It will be the thing that drives us. It can be any desire, even for something good that is elevated above the position of God in our lives so what kind of things could be included in that well careers can certainly be on the list some people spend their whole life you know I I really through the years I've actually had people say to me you know I don't have a whole lot of time right now because I'm building a career but when when I get things straightened out and settled down, I'm going to get more active in the church. Well, I doubt it. And, but what they're really saying is my career is, is the number one spot in my life right now. Some people make their family their God. I've heard people say, my family comes first. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to think about that statement. In fact, let me read to you the words of Jesus. Now, multitudes were going along with him. And every once in a while, Jesus had one of these weeding out moments. You know, here's the multitude, and every once in a while he just stops and says, Okay. I, I just need to kind of part this C for a moment and, and get priorities straight. So he weeds it out and he says, he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to tell the story. Who who sets out to build a tower and does not count the cost? He says, you need to think about what it means to follow me because I will be first. I am more important than your spouse. I am more important than your children. I am more important than your father or your mother or your brothers or your sisters. You remember the story of the guy that came to Jesus and says, Lord, I want to follow you, but I need to go and bury my dad. And and once I've gotten that taken care of, I'll be right there with you. And Jesus says, you know what? Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me now. And I don't think what Jesus was saying there was you can't go to the funeral. Although sometimes following Jesus means that. The church is filled with a history of missionaries who have gone... In earlier times, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and have not been able to be there when their parents died and were buried and other things. They have given those things up. And Jesus said, That is the cost of discipleship. You've got to have your priorities right, and I'm number one. Some people make achievement there, God. Some people value their independence. Some people are really after material possessions. Some people create a God around other people's need for them. Psychologists call that codependence. But it's when you make yourself so necessary to another person or to another group of people that they can't get along without you and you without them, and you've got this codependent thing going on that um, is really a false god. Some people make physical attractiveness their god. How many people have you known or heard of in your life who had some kind of trauma or accident that permanently changed their appearance and all of a sudden life has no meaning anymore? What does it tell you about what was core in importance to them? Some people need human approval. Some people require financial security. I know people that that live to accumulate money in the bank. They want that security. They want to know that... If there's any emergency in their home, they can pay cash for it. If there's any crisis in their life, they can pay cash for it. When they retire, they can write themselves a check out of their bank account until they're 140. They want to know that they're completely secure and they live their lives planning for retirement. Wow. What are the idols that you and I have in our lives? I want you to look at this quote by Becky Pippert that I've put on your paper there. It's a very interesting statement. It's it's a true statement because it's born out of biblical truth, not because Becky Pippert said it. But Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the person he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Let me go back to Genesis for just a moment. Let me remind you that I want to take you through some things that may illustrate some of this. What was the... Dangling promise the carrot that the devil held out to Eve and ultimately to Adam in the day that you eat of it you will be like God you can be independent you can be autonomous you can have control of your own life you can be God you'll be just like him Wrong. We are not able, by design, we are not able to be independent. You will either serve God, or you will serve the devil. And if you think you're serving yourself, you're still really serving in bondage to Satan. It is not possible for any person on this planet to be autonomous. Self governing. You're going to be ruled by one thing or person or another. And whoever controls you is your Lord. So, do you have to have power? That's your God. Do you need security? Then, financial security is your idol. Do you have to have it? Is that a demand in your life? Is it above all else in order to have peace? I've got to have security. All of these things that drive us are actually our Lord. Uh, on the back of your sheet or the other side of it, there's a chart, and uh, this chart was designed by a guy by the name of Dick Kaufman. You can find him on the internet if you're interested. He's pastor of a church called Harbor Presbyterian. And um, he just put this together. And I thought it was useful. I'm not offering this to you this morning as law and gospel, but I, I do think it's a useful way of beginning to kind of deal with some of the areas of our own lives that may be idols in our lives that we don't recognize. And down the left-hand side, there's, there are some things like comfort, approval, control, and power that um, kind of are drives that people are after. And then across the top, there's, there's this grid that says, what are we seeking? What price are we willing to pay? What is our greatest nightmare? How do we make others feel? And what emotions are common in that? And underneath those things, I think, are core sins. They're basic sins that uh, kind of drive the drive. the, The underlying sin that gives fuel to the drive. And I just want to talk about some of these things for a few minutes this morning and ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life as we look at it and say, are there idols in my life? Am I serving other gods other than the Lord? Some people live for comfort in fact i think we are in a society right now in our culture in the united states where people are living and wanting comfort more than anything else they they want a relatively stress free life they they want to have no great problems or difficulties or challenges they want to be able to do the things that they want to do they want to be able to kind of take it easy and relax and Underneath that desire for comfort... Now, comfort's a legitimate desire. But if it's elevated to a place of primacy in our life, it becomes an idol. And I think the thing that underlies comfort is a sense of sloth or laziness. I don't want to have responsibility. I don't want to take risk... um, I want my privacy. I want to have a lack of stress. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. And the price that we ultimately pay for that is, is a loss of productivity. One of the things that people often get wrong when they look at that Genesis chapter 3 passage and, and the curse, you know, they say, oh my goodness, work is, is the curse of sin. You know, Adam and Eve are going to have to go to work. That's their curse. That's not their curse. They went to work before the fall. I mean, look at the text. What does it say? Be fruitful. Fill the earth. Multiply. Have dominion. Subdue it. Manage it. You're the overseers. I made this place for you. Take care of it. Adam, I want you to name all the animals. It's your first assignment. Give them all names. That's work. God designed us for a purpose. That's not just a cliché from some tract. That is biblical truth that God made you for a purpose. In fact, Paul says it very plainly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God designed before the foundation of the world or from the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. God has made you for a reason. You have a role to play that has, yes, eternal significance. You know, you've heard philosophers say how valuable and important is your life. Well, stick your finger in a bucket of water and pull it out and see what kind of an impression you leave. You know, people go, oh, wow, that's profound. No, that's stupid. It it still makes an impression. It disturbs things in the water. There's ripples. Molecules have been upset. Things have happened. And by the way, if you examine the water closely, you would find they left some bacteria in there. We make a difference. But besides the silliness, God made us to be productive. He designed us, wove us in our mother's womb, built into us aptitudes and skills and abilities. And when we come to Christ, He adds to that spiritual giftedness. And our lives have a purpose and a function. We're not intended to just coast through life, just kind of laying back saying, well, I don't want any stress in my life, so I just think I'll avoid all responsibility. I want to be comfortable. We were meant to be industrious. Now, some people make a God out of that. And they work all the time. And and we were also meant to spend time in God's presence. We were meant to rest. It's a reason that we need sleep and spend a third of our lives, or at least you ought to spend a third of your life roughly sleeping. I'm at a point where I wish I could spend a third of my life. Sleeping. I don't sleep a third of my life anymore. I just I wake up. But So there's balance, but nonetheless, we were created to be industrious and productive. And God says, when I am running your life, those works that I made for you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, your life has eternal significance. There's something you were designed to do that no one else can do. This is not a graduation speech. This is biblical truth. You were made for a purpose. But some people live as if their goal was to avoid the purpose. I want comfort. I want a stress-free life. I don't want any demands. What impact does that have on people around them? They're often they, people around them often feel you're not doing your fair share. you're not contributing. you're not part of the game. What are you doing? You're just kind of hanging out. You know you're sucking oxygen. but what are you doing with it? And what is the common emotion? I thought this was kind of interesting, boredom. How many times do you hear people say, "I'm bored. Why are you bored? There's nothing to do. Really? You know, I look around and I, there's, I always see stuff to do. I'm sorry, that's part of my problem. I have a different idol. But there's always something to do. But their reaction is, I spend my time avoiding responsibility. I want to avoid stress. I, I, I don't want this pressure in my life. And so when you live life like that, you know, the goal of the day is to do as little as possible and to just kind of kick back and relax as much as possible. You find that you're not being productive, loss of productivity. What happens when you start adding all that up? Zero today, zero tomorrow, zero Wednesday, zero Saturday... You add up all the zeros, you come to a point in life where you say, I'm worthless. I don't have any meaning. My life has no value. And guess what? You're right. That's exactly what's happening. We were made in Jesus Christ for a different purpose. But we have a whole culture that is pursuing the desire for pleasure and recreation and relaxation as a way of life? How about people that are driven by the need for approval? I think the underlying, to me, the underlying sin there is that we doubt God's love for us and God's approval of us. And by the way... The problem here is not that you have a need for approval. The problem is that you've elevated it to the level of being your God. I think there were very successful people in the Bible who had a need for approval, but they subordinated that to the Lordship of Almighty God. Jeremiah was one of them, I'm convinced. Jeremiah, when God came to him, what's the first thing he said? Notice his insecurities. I am but a youth. I'm too young for this responsibility. And God says, Don't tell me you're a youth, for you shall say all that I command you, and you'll speak to them everything I give you. And then God says to Jeremiah, Do not be dismayed at their faces. Why did He tell Jeremiah that? He didn't tell everybody He called that, but He told Jeremiah that. He told him that because Jeremiah was dismayed at their faces. He needed approval. He needed his you know, approval rating to be high. And God was saying to him, you you really need my approval rating to be high, but you don't need to worry about those other people. Go and tell them the things that I've given you. I think Timothy struggled with this. But he was nonetheless a great servant and follower of Jesus Christ because he subordinated his needs to the lordship of Jesus Christ but when Paul sent him back to Ephesus to bring some correction to the church there you know what does he say to that what does he say to him Timothy God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and of a sound mind and he says tell them the things that they need to hear don't be afraid of what they're going to do or say hold them accountable tell them the truth he says Timothy you might even need to take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're off in infirmities. I think Timothy had a stress problem. But nonetheless, he was willing to stay there and be the faithful servant of Jesus Christ. But some of us are driven by this need for approval. My, I'm not blaming early childhood. You can go overboard with that. But we do get influenced in life. and uh most of you know that I was almost three by the time I was adopted and, and I've been passed around a little bit and one thing and another. And so it, it, insecurities develop with that, I think, I, you know, they're kind of on the hard drive a little bit. And the need to be liked to the need for approval is a part of, you know, part of my wiring. So guess what passage of scripture God used when he called me to preach? Jeremiah chapter 1. Do not say I'm a youth. Do not be afraid of their faces. Go and say the things that I've commanded you. Because that has to be subordinated to Jesus Christ. What price are people willing to pay whose God is the need for approval? Well, less independence. Now you can take independence too far but you can also be too needy because the greatest nightmare of this individual is rejection. And as a consequence, others around them often feel smothered. If you have a very needy person in your midst who constantly needs affirmation and approval, how do you feel after a while? This person's choking me to death. I've always got to build them up. It's killing me, man. Just go stand over there for a minute, okay? On your own, just stand. Because they wear out the people around them if they're excessive in this direction. And what frequently governs them is, is a sense of fear of risking making enemies, of saying the offensive thing, sometimes even the fear of speaking the truth. There are people who live to be in control. I think the underlying sin here is fear. We're afraid of being out of control. We're afraid of the unexpected we're afraid of something that might happen and so we emphasize discipline and certainty and standards we like rules and regulations we prefer a roadmap and an itinerary when we leave the house on a trip and and we've got to keep it rigidly oh we're going to stop for lunch here we're going to stop for supper here and We've already made all the arrangements and the motels for the whole vacation and and we're going to have all this stuff planned out because nothing can go wrong in this whole thing. I'm exaggerating a bit, but people that need to have control want to define every aspect of their lives. Part of the price that they often pay is loneliness and a complete lack of spontaneity. They never have a serendipity. They never just have something happen on the spur of the moment. Have you ever thought about how much control we can have? Do you know how much control you have right now? None. Absolutely none. Jesus put it this way He said, Why do you worry? You cannot make one hair white or black. You can be the best driver on the planet and somebody can reach over to pick up the french fry they dropped and pull the wheel and hit you head on at 60 miles an hour and you're out of control. And you did nothing wrong. You have no control. I over this weekend I stayed down in Wheaton Friday night because um I had to be back there Saturday morning it was just easier to stay down there so the the district got a block of rooms and so I've I've got this room it's kind of interesting because it was like a little suite they got an incredible deal in fact it's probably such a good deal I I probably can't say it on the internet or I'd be in trouble with Marriott hotels but anyway they got this so I had this this nice I'm all by myself and uh, it's got a kitchen and a living area, and it's got a bedroom and a bathroom, and you know, and I'm in, I'm just totally secluded in this in this uh, hotel, and I'm getting out of the shower Saturday morning, and I forgot, I realized that when I stepped in, but forgot, and the whole bathroom's white, so I couldn't see that the floor of the tub was about six inches higher than the floor of the bathroom. Now you know what happens when you go to land and the floor's not where you thought it was. You know, so I stepped out and the floor wasn't there for a while. It was like another six inches, and I almost fell over. I mean, just <clears throat> I, it was just just that close. Now you're gonna probably learn more about me than you wanted to know. I may have learned more about me than I wanted to know. I used to teach in emergency medicine, I used to teach a course called The Kinematics of Motion and the Mechanisms of Injury. And it was to train paramedics to look for the hidden injuries and the occult injuries. And you got to know all that's happening and how did this injury occur, you know. So, so as I step down and miss the floor and start to slide, and I realize I'm about to topple over In like a millisecond, this vision flashes through my mind because there's a marble threshold, and I and I perceive I I kid you not, this just happened like bing about where my head would land is the marble threshold. And I thought, what if I hit my head on that threshold, knock myself out, get a subdural hematoma, and die here? You know, or I'm unconscious, and how long is it going to be before anybody finds me? They're not even going to look until after 12 o'clock. And I had all those thoughts go through my mind. Now, that's weird, right? It's it's okay. It's weird. But all that stuff went through my mind. Plus the thought that they're going to find me in all of my splendor here in the bathroom. (laughs) And I realized that in a millisecond of time, my life could have been totally transformed if not eliminated. From this planet. You know? And it's like, whoa! We have no control. We just think we do. The only safety in this world is in God. Because He is, Jesus is the one who says, do not be afraid of the people that can kill you. I mean, how much more? To the bottom line can you get when you say, don't even worry about those that can kill you. But be concerned about my Father in heaven who has the ultimate control over your eternal destiny. And then the assurance that Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back. I'm going to take you to myself. Where I am, there you can be. I'm going to see you safely to my heavenly kingdom. You are secure with me. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power to the sound mind. People who are searching always for control, that need to have their life all tidy and wrapped up, and they can't move unless everything is in order, are people that are scared to death of uncertainty. But there's nothing out there but uncertainty. Advice to businessmen, James says, you who say tomorrow will go to such and such a city and buy and sell and trade and make a profit. And he says, what are you thinking? You don't have a clue what a day is going to bring forth. By the way, I forgot to mention in prayer, this is a total aside, but it made me think of a heart attack and that made me think of Luke Wright. And I want to share his testimony. I got an email from a text message from him last night. This is really kind of cool. Last Friday night, you know, we were praying for Luke last Sunday. Last Friday night, he had a heart attack. I mean, he had chest pain. He was cold, clammy, and sweaty, diaphoretic. His, his rhythm was all askew. It was all irregular. Um, he had all the signs, shortness of breath, the whole nine yards. Uh, like any good person in the medical field, he didn't call the ambulance. He had his wife drive him into the hospital. I don't know why we do that, but anyway, that's what he did. And they ran the blood work, and sure enough, his cardiac enzymes were elevated. And that usually means that there's damage, and your body's already starting to try to dissolve the problem and get rid of it, and those, those things go up. So everything said heart attack. And we prayed. You know, when he called, I felt led to pray that God would just protect his heart. Now, he's already had the blood work done. But God protect his heart. And then Sunday he had the stress test. Yeah, there's blockage here. We see the changes on the EKG. And you've got lack of oxygen going to parts of your heart. There's probably a, an infarct, a place of injury in here. And so they scheduled him for angioplasty. And we prayed for him last Sunday. And went to his home and prayed for him. And asked God to bring healing. He had the Angiography scheduled for, I believe it was Wednesday. Arteries are open. They thought 90% blockage of the right coronary arteries were open. No infarct, no ischemia, couldn't find any areas of damage. Heart was more healthy today than it was at his physical two years ago. Absolutely no trace of a heart attack anywhere. He texted me last night. He said, God has. Completely healed me. You know, I me mean, all the cardiologists are saying, well, sometimes these changes, you know, no, like, no, 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 no. God stepped in here and did something amazing. Why do you worry about tomorrow? You can't make one hair white or black. But God can do anything, and we're perfectly safe with Him. Some people want power, they have to win. They have to be on top. And for that, they're willing to accept all kind of responsibility. I'm not going to go into all details about that. Look at this series of questions. Let's just wrap up with that. Look at this series of questions. Clues to idols in your life. Right now this morning, here's my question. I want you to take this home, think about it, and this is in lieu of our regular study guide. Take this to your small groups and talk about it. You can be honest with one another. What do you worry about the most? Clues to the idols in your life. What do you worry about the most? Do you worry about being embarrassed? Do you worry about losing face? Do you worry about loss of income? Do you worry about... What do you worry about? What, if it were lost, would cause you to feel you no longer wanted to live? Some of these things get down to the nitty gritty. One of the fellows in the group this weekend said, you know, he said I had a a, a blip. One of those physicals. was <laughs> kind of funny. He said, I went for my annual physical, and he said there was this intern doing the physicals, and he said so I got a physical. You know, interns have to do everything because they're practicing. So he said I got a physical, but interns also, you know, they're 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 the ones that are enmeshed in all of the medical literature, and, and they're always waiting to find that rare disease that only occurs one in 20 million. You know, million. They're looking for that. It's got to be out there somewhere. And so he has this thorough physical, and they, they call him back, and they say, you know, we think we saw something in your test that may mean you have this disease. And it was a very debilitating, destructive course of illness, ultimately culminating in death. And uh, he, he confessed to our group. He said, as soon as I heard that, my initial reaction was, God, if this is true, I just want to die right now. I do not want to live through this. Fortunately, it was the mistake <laughs> of the young intern, and he didn't have it. But it pointed out the idol my help. If I'm not in good health, operating under my own steam, with all my faculties working, I don't want to live. That's, that's a powerful statement. Because God can use you no matter what your physical circumstances. God has a purpose in your life. And he wanted to cut it short. What do you rely on for comfort, to comfort you when things go bad or get difficult? When I was in college, in my freshman year, I lived in a dorm in a dorm downtown in West Palm Beach that had been an old apartment complex. And about two blocks from the dorm was this all-night diner associated with a hotel or a motel. And this all-night diner um, served the best hot fudge sundaes ever. Just... Fabulous hot fudge Sundays. And when you're 18 years old and you're six foot two and you weigh 170 pounds, you do not worry very much about the impact of hot fudge Sundays. And so um, whenever I would have a bad day at school, whenever things didn't go right, whenever somebody dumped on me and made me feel terrible, I would take myself to the diner and get a hot fudge sundae. And I would sit there and eat that thing, and it made me feel better. Some years ago, in one of my first rounds of the constant boxing match of the Battle of the Bulge, I was um, praying about my weight, and God reminded me of that. It was just very insightful that that hot fudge sundae was a way to cope with my emotional struggles. And I needed that. Very interesting. What do you rely on to comfort you when things get bad or difficult? What is your release valve to cope or feel better? Do you have one of those uh, stressful situations and... Take refuge in what? When you think, what do you think most easily about or your mind tends to go to when it's free? Boy, here's an eye-opener. When when nothing else is going on in your life that demands your attention and you just kind of are idle for a moment, where do your thoughts go? Where do they return? What is underlying all the time in your stream of consciousness what prayer unanswered would cause you to think seriously about turning away from God boy that's an interesting question my dad was dying of colorectal cancer when I was 15 and I prayed every single night that God would heal him and he died And I was furious. And I literally asked God to please vacate my life. I wanted nothing to do with Him. It was about a year. Unfortunately, God didn't answer that prayer. And it was about a year when I finally realized I couldn't live life without God. But that was the prayer that unanswered made me seriously think about it. What... What unanswered prayer would cause you to seriously think about turning away from God? What makes you feel the most self-worth when you're riding the crest, when you're on top of it all? What is it that's just happened? What do you really want or expect out of life? What's your goal for the future? Do you have idols that are controlling you? Fear of people, fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of financial loss or insecurity. What is it that controls your life? Or is Jesus Christ truly enthroned in your life and all of these other things? Are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who controls you. I want to encourage you this week to think about that. You know, I want to say what I'm about to say very carefully because um, there's value, and there's value in having an ordered service that um, ends in a predictable amount of time. It's not that that's a wrong thing to do necessarily. But not long ago, I heard about a group of people who had, um, and this was, had. it's been a while back, because it was on our old website, I think, that that our services tended to last from an hour and 15 to two hours. And uh, I heard that they didn't even ever visit our church because there's no way they would sit through a two-hour service. Do you see any problem with that? I mean, just think about it a moment. Have you ever sat through a two-hour movie? Have you ever sat through a three-hour ball game? Does that say something about us? If we can't worship the living God? Now, I realize listening to me talk is not always worshiping the living God. But do you see what I'm getting at? What does it say about what we value? What does it say about our heart? What are the things in your life that are capturing your attention, your energy, your imagination, your investment, your money, your time, that do not begin with Jesus Christ. When He is Lord, everything else lines up. And it will all fit. And when He is not on the throne, you're headed for trouble. Father, I pray this morning that You would open our minds and our hearts to hear what Your Spirit is saying to us that we would be willing this week that perhaps even right now we would, we would commit to take the time to sit in Your presence and to ask You, Oh God, if there's anything that has captured Your place in my life, would You please expose it? Lord, would you show me where my idols are? Because I want to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, our lives are open to you. Examine our hearts. What do we need? Besides Jesus. To truly make us happy. Amen.